deep, it's powerful. We're not going to rush through it tonight, but get to Ephesians chapter 1, get to verse 4. And I'm going to read through verse 6 tonight. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the boundless truth, the endless wisdom, the rich treasures that you've tucked into your word for those who seek you with their whole hearts. Father, tonight by the Holy Spirit, reveal to us all that's in here. Help us to grasp sound doctrine and solid theology tonight. Help us to have an understanding of the mysteries of your grace and your mercy and the gift of salvation the depth of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray all that in Jesus' name. And Wednesday night said, amen. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Stop. That was so much there, those three verses. Now I just want you to close your eyes and let me read it to you. Now that you know I'm not going to try and trick you and read something different. And just let that soak into your heart before we tear it all apart and ingest it tonight. Close your eyes. Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Ephesians has so much about our redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. This folks on, focuses on Christ the Redeemer. Uh, verses 3 through 13 are going to focus on the redemption that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. We're, we're going to cover verses 4 through 6 tonight. We did 1 through 3 last week. If you want to catch up on that, you can get it online. But the, he starts off, and, and in these verses 3 through 13, you're going to see the phrase, in him. Say, in him. When we say we're in Christ, when we say we're in him, when we're uh, in Christ, it means something. It means we're born again. It means we're filled with the Holy Spirit. It means that we're walking in his will. So in him is a, is a little theme that happens here in these verses, uh, 3 through 13, and it occurs five times. And it's driving home the point that our redemption hinges on our personal connection to Jesus. It's not in our knowledge, it's not in our theology, it's not in the denomination of the church we attend. Our salvation rests in him. And everything about our redemption is in him. This is important that we grab the theme out of here and we see the points that Paul is driving home through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because we need to know what it means to be in him and all that happens when we are in him. Because if we're not in him, then we are disconnected. Remember the parable that talks about, you know, the branches and the vine and how we're grafted in. There's a lot of those implications here. Why? Because people can say they're Christians, but not be born again and not be connected to the power source. Come on, say amen. In fact, many of us for many years probably walked around saying we were Christians because we went to a Christian church or because our parents said we were. But until we came to Jesus and got born again and became one of his very own children, in him didn't mean much to us. Five times 
in these few verses, the scripture says, in him. Now, verses four through five introduce the idea of selection and predestination. Some of this is going to get thick with theology tonight. So if you had a long day, if you're a little worn out, you know, uh, smack yourself on the face, hit yourself with a cup of cold water and wake up because you don't want to miss this tonight. You want to get this. Amen. Uh, We're going to talk about selection and predestination. If you're taking notes tonight, write those two things down. There's a little bit of a theme in here that we're going to cover tonight in detail. These concepts have become powerful theological themes in many denominations. The idea of predestination and selection. We're going to find out that those are scriptural ideas. They are rooted in scripture. Yet sometimes in the application of these things, I believe we've missed the theological implications that God wanted us to get. And denominations have kind of gone off the rails with these things, pushing them to such a degree as to miss the rest of the full counsel of scripture. So we're going to talk about selection and predestination tonight. And uh, hopefully by the time we're done, you will understand it thoroughly. Verse 4 highlights the thrilling fact that God, in his great mercy, chose us to be his people, his sons and his daughters, to be recipients of the gift of eternal life. How many people are glad about that? Amen. That's why we're here tonight, amen. You You didn't come for a religious duty or obligation. You certainly didn't come to see me. What we came here tonight is because we are children of God. And we love Jesus, and we want to be where Jesus is. We want to be where the Word is. We want to be where the Holy Spirit is moving. Amen? Come on, if I'm preaching right, say amen. And so we're here because, you know, God has chosen us. God has called us. God has predestined us to be sons and daughters. We're connected to him. We are in him. Now, it's a thrilling fact, you know, that he chose us. And you and I need to understand something about ourselves. We were never afterthoughts. You got to hear that. You and I were never afterthoughts. We weren't add-ons. We were not an extra that plugged in. Come on, some of us went to school, and we were the last one picked for every team, the last one picked for kickball. Oh, I'll take him, fine. You know, if you were that kid, you know, I'm sorry. You can get counseling. Let it go. But some of us, you know, you know, we were an afterthought. And so I've heard people say things like, you know, uh, this, is, this is terrible, but I got, I got to say it. You know, people say, oh, well, they were our oops, baby, oops. Did I just get too real for you on Wednesday night? There's no such thing as an oops, baby. It's God who opens the womb. It's God who gives life. It's God who brings creation. Come on tonight. There's no oops. You're not an afterthought. You're not a mistake. You're not an add-on. You're not a leftover. You're not an accident. You're an on-purpose. Come on, if you can't get excited about that, I got my work cut out for me tonight because it's going to get thicker in here. So, you know, he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Look at that. You know, before we were born, he chose us. Before the world was formed, he chose us. Before Genesis 1-1, he chose us. In his infinite wisdom, in his omniscience, he he thought ahead and he looked and he knew who we were before he knit us together in our mother's womb. Come on tonight. You're not an afterthought. You're not an accident. You, You were made for a purpose. You're called for a purpose. You're gifted for a purpose. You're an on purpose. 
A lot of us don't feel like that at times, but the truth is that that's who we are. God, look, he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. And and this verse makes it really hard to deny how intimately God knows us. He knows us. You know, and you think about the, the, the texts that talk about, you know, he knows us and he formed our inward parts and he knit us together. Uh, the, just the detail there. When it comes to our individual purposes and destinies, God is not winging it. Amen. Well, what am I going to do with my life? Let me choose. I, I kind of laugh when people say, oh, I want to choose a career path. I want to choose what I want to do with myself. Look, we were made for a purpose. God's not winging it. God's not saying, well, what am I going to do with Leonardo? Oh, I got no position. So I, got no, I don't know what I'm going to do with him. It's hard to look at a scripture like this and think, you know, well, life is just a series of anomalies and accidents and choices. And, you know, we kind of just end up by the course we choose. No, God knew us and we were in him before the foundations of the world. Listen to the description of our standing before God in Christ, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Wow. The truth is, if we're honest, a lot of times we don't feel holy. Come on Wednesday night. And the truth is, if we're honest, none of us are hardly ever blameless. Anybody? No? But yet he chose us what? To be holy and blameless. And many, many people look, look at a scripture like that, you know, and, and not understanding the heart of God. The enemy gets in there and go, oh, you're not making it. You're not meeting the standard. You're missing the mark. You're not holy. You better step up your game. Uh, did you ever try? I want to be more spiritual. I want to be more holy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the Bible for two hours a day. I'm going to get up at four o'clock and pray every day of the week. Come on, a couple people are getting, and the rest of you are still passed out here. And what do we do? We get nervous. Oh, I'm not holy enough. I'm not, I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not, I'm not saved enough. And we try to ramp it up in our own strength to up our game. And the truth is, no matter how hard we try or how much we do, even if we were able to do all of those things on a consistent basis, that would not make us holy. And it certainly wouldn't make us blameless because you know what I found out that people that go through all these rigorous disciplines and and hitting these marks and accomplishing all these things, after a while, even if they do it, they get proud about it. I've heard a person pray and they weren't getting what they wanted and they were praying, come on, God, I, I, I do what you want me to do. I pray every day and I read this much of scripture and they were citing all these things about why God should answer their prayer the way they want it answered right now. And I thought, my goodness, that stinks of pride. That's not holy. That's not blameless. We don't push God around or demand God perform uh, and give us what we want when we want it because we did X, Y, and Z for him? Come on now. So he's called us to be holy and blameless. And, you know, the truth is God does, in fact, require 
his children to be holy. And we need to understand that. In Leviticus 20, 26, God said to his people this, Thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart for the people to be mine. So, so God's saying, I'm holy, you need to be holy. He's talking to the Old Testament Jews. He's talking to them, you know, in the book of Leviticus. He has covenant with them. And he's saying, look, guys, you, you need to live a certain way. You need to embrace a certain standard. You can't be like the heathens. You, you can't be like the other nations. I'm your God and I'm holy, so you need to be holy. And remember, th- there was this holiness standard, you know, in the law covenant and all of these things. And if you, if you missed the mark, you had to bring a sacrifice. And, and the law was a mess. And all it did was prove that we couldn't be holy, we couldn't be righteous, and that we needed a Savior. You know, the only function of the Ten Commandments today is to bring us to the knowledge of sin. If you get the Ten Commandments and you try, I'm going to try today, I'm going to keep all the commandments, I'm going to really be good, I'm not going to sin at all today, you will prove to yourself by the end of the day that you need a Savior. That's the only function of the Ten Commandments at this point, to give us the knowledge of sin. So it will drive us to our knees. The harder we try, the more desperate we get, the more broken and messed up we see that we are, and we cry out for Jesus. So, you know, God does ask us to be holy. In 1 Peter 1.6, he says, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the New Testament writer is quoting the Old Testament in Leviticus, and God is saying, you know, you need to be holy, for I am holy. Now, I want to say something. There is only one thing that makes sinners like you and I holy and blameless, and that's the blood of Jesus. Without the blood, we're done. And, you know, well, I come to church and I read the Bible and, you know, I'm a good person and I don't do the big sins, so I'm holy. Well, I didn't kill anybody. You know, (laughs) if we break one part of the law, we're guilty of all of it. And so God requires holiness. Now, as he requires that from us, we have to come to the place where we derive our holiness from the only source that we can get it from, and that's from the blood of Jesus. There, is, there are really two kinds of holiness that we need to understand, positional holiness and personal holiness, and let's talk about that. Every one of us who's born again, who's in Christ, remember that's our theme, every one of us who is in Christ has positional holiness as a finished work of the cross in our lives. There should be more amens. Because, you know, when God looks at me, Ray, he doesn't go, oh, there's Rick. He's all messed up. No, he sees Jesus. He sees the blood of Jesus on me, amen. And he's like, there's my son. He's holy and righteous in my sight. I can have fellowship with him because of the blood, amen. That's positional holiness. But I could have just said a bad word, still holy. But I I, I could have had a bad attitude, a bad thought. I, I, I messed up a lot today. Still holy. Why? Because it's part of the free gift of salvation that positionally, when you are in Christ and in, uh, in relationship with him and under his blood, that God sees us as holy. Now, personal holiness is a different thing. Personal holiness is worked into us by the sanctifying process, the process of sanctification that happens by the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit is in us. When? From the moment uh, that we are born again, he's in us working to lead us to this place where he can conform us to the image of Christ. It is a process. Sanctification is not an instant thing. You can't come online here and, and we lay hands on you and say, be sanctified and you're totally perfect and holy. We can hold you under in the waters of baptism till the bubbles slow down, and still, that won't kill that sin nature. We, the only way we can be holy is in the blood, and then we have to allow the Holy Spirit to work holiness into us. How many can honestly say, you know, none of us are sinless, but how many can honestly say, I'm a lot different than I was before I got saved? Woo, Amen. And if you're not raising your hand, you can get saved after service here. Because if you get saved and you're still the same, you you better get on your knees and work out your salvation with fear and trembling, amen? Because you and I should be different after we give ourselves to Christ. We're not going to be perfect, but that old man that's buried in the waters of baptism has got to let go of his grip, and then slowly but surely the Holy Spirit works us into the image of Christ. Look, I don't know how many lifetimes we'd have to live until we got it right, but that's up to God when he takes us home. But the Bible says he's coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle. Sometimes I think all this stress and all this pressure and all this darkness and all of this bad news is to drive us to our knees so we get right with God, we get serious about walking with him, we get serious about praying, amen? Positional holiness and personal holiness. Positionally, you and I are holy if we're saved. Uh, personal holiness is an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we should avoid sin. We should follow the commandments of Christ. We should crucify our flesh daily. But despite our best efforts, we are going to need the blood of Jesus and the grace of God every minute of every day. Amen. Oh, a lively group tonight. Are you guys tired? Is it too hot in here? I'm preaching good. You're just looking at me. Ty, was it a rough day? Tell the truth. We don't lie in church. It's a rough day. Okay. I'll try and lighten up a little bit. I'll try. So we're chosen by God. And if we're in Christ, positionally, we're holy and blameless in his sight. Now, Paul tells us in verse 5 that we are predestined. Say that word, predestined. Say it again louder. All right. You got it. There it is. What does that mean, predestined? There's a word we don't use. Uh, there are two key texts when it comes to predestination as a doctrine. I want you to write them down. Romans 8, 29 through 30, and Ephesians 1 through 5 and verse 11. Uh, that's our text for tonight. But listen to Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Remember, in him, the Holy Spirit's working in us to conform us in order that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there's one of the key verses that is used to formulate this doctrine of predestination. Also Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In him we obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So let's talk about predestination a little bit tonight. 
Predestination is obviously a biblical doctrine. I'm going to give you a lot of uh, scriptures where it occurs, where this doctrine comes from. Yet many resist this doctrine because they, they see it as it's not fair. Well, if God chose some people to get saved and some people not to get saved, that's not fair. That's not what the doctrine of predestination is. Listen to me. God didn't choose some people and reject some people. It's in his foreknowledge he knew who would accept him and who would reject him. And he positioned his grace accordingly to those people. Listen, there are some churches that teach, well, you're either chosen or you're not. And God made some people to be saved and some people to go to hell. Listen, that does not line up with the rest of Scripture. God didn't make anybody to go to hell. God doesn't send people to hell just because, you know, he didn't like them and he liked this one and he placed favorites. God does not send anyone to hell. We send ourselves to hell if we reject Jesus Christ. We send ourselves to hell if we try to find another way when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. God does not send anyone to hell. Hell wasn't even made for people. Hell was made for Satan and his demons. It was made for the fallen angels that rebelled against God. People weren't even supposed to go there. So predestination has to do with the fact that God selected or elected or has chosen some through his divine will and his omniscience that he knew who would receive him and who would reject him. And he poured out his grace accordingly. As with all doctrines, we have to examine the scriptures to see what the doctrine, what the scripture actually says, you know, and if that lines up with what men formulated a doctrine. You know, men can take a, a, an excerpt of scripture and, and say this is what it means, but if it doesn't agree with the whole counsel of God's word, it's not a biblical doctrine. So let's take a look at some of this tonight. The word translated predestination that we just heard in Romans 8 and Ephesians 1 is the Greek word prorizo. It, its meaning is this, to determine beforehand, to ordain or to decide ahead of time. God has determined beforehand, he's ordained ahead of time that you and I would be saved. Remember the scripture we read in Ephesians, what? You know, before earth was made, before we were in our mother's womb, before, you know, we even came into existence, God chose us and chose to save us and knew that we would respond to the gospel and be saved, and so he poured out his grace accordingly. Powerful doctrine tonight that we need to understand. We're going to talk about its misapplication and how, you know, we get into trouble with it a little bit. But in the light of the word prorizo, predestination is God determining in his sovereign will that certain things would happen according to his will ahead of time. Uh, now, according to Romans 8, he predestined certain individuals who would be conform, conformed to the likeness of his son, to be called, to be justified, to be glorified. And that's where it is where God picked us. He chose, the, he chose us before the earth was made because he knew who would respond to the gospel and who wouldn't. Are you getting this tonight? It's getting quieter and quieter. I will. I got to finish my notes or I can't go home. Other scriptures that refer to believers in Christ being predestined are many. And I want to give you, I'm going to just shout out some of them. If you want to write them down, 
that's fine. If you don't, just listen. These all talk about predestination and the fact that we are chosen by God. Matthew 24, 22, Mark 13, 20, and 27, Romans 8, 33, Romans 9, 11, Romans 11, 5 through 7, Ephesians 1, 11, Colossians 3, 12, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, 1 Timothy 5, 21, 2 Timothy 2, 10, Titus 1, 1, 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2, 1 Peter uh, 1, 2 through 9, 2 Peter 1 through 10. Does that sound like it's well-rooted in the New Testament? Amen? I mean, I can go through every one of those scriptures with you, but judging by the glazed look in your eyes, we'll get lost in the theological swamp here. So the truth is, you know, predestination is a solid biblical concept. Now, the application of that concept that has become doctrine in some denominations, I, I think, is a little off the mark. We're going to talk about that. All these scriptures suggest that God in his sovereignty chose certain individuals to be saved because he knew they would respond to the gospel. Now, where I feel that the application of predestination goes off the rails is when some churches get an attitude like this. Well, who's ever going to be saved is going to be saved. So, you know, what? we don't have to do anything about it except enjoy our salvation. Are you tracking with me? An attitude like that will destroy the, evangel the, the evangelistic thrust of the church. If I think I have no responsibility to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to make converts, if I think I have no responsibility for missions and outreach beyond these four walls, the church becomes a little God bless me club where just the saved people wander in and we just revel in our own salvation while the world goes to hell around us. Now, that doesn't line up with the rest of Scripture, and I'm going to show you that. Now, that's an extreme application of predestination, and I want to talk about the extreme tonight. I'm not saying all of these denominations apply it that way, but some of them do, and some people get this attitude, well, you know, whoever is going to be saved is going to be saved, and we have nothing to do except just enjoy being saved. With an attitude like that, the world will go to hell all around us. Now, when it comes uh, to the, the doctrinal application of predestination, uh, the modern church falls into two camps. These camps are not new. They're old. You have the Calvinists and you have the Arminians. If you're taking notes tonight, uh, write down these two, uh, these two camps, Calvinists and Arminians. You're going to see, uh, as we describe what these two camps believe, you're going to see where you fit in where we fit in uh, just from listening to the way we preach here and the fact that we're evangelical and we believe that you know it's our, our job to evangelize and reach the lost and do missions so here's what calvinism and armenianism are two attempts to explain how the sovereignty of god works in relation to man's free will and man's responsibility in the area of salvation now understand, yeah, God saves us. He does all the heavy lifting. He sent Jesus. It's the blood that saves us. But what role do we have in it? Do we have to respond to the gospel? Do we have to repent of our sins? Do we have to make a decision of our will to accept Jesus as Savior and Lord? Yes, but um, predestination, some of the people say, no, 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 grace is irresistible, and you don't even have a choice. And when God picks you, you're picked, and you're going to come to him whether you like it or not. Calvinism and Arminianism. So let's take a look at the difference between these two. The, the difference between these two camps uh, in, over the issue of predestination really hinges on how much responsibility we have 
for our salvation. So there are three basic differences. Calvinists believe that God alone chooses who will be saved by his sovereign choice. We are born dead in our sins, unable to respond to the grace of God. Therefore, God's predestination of who will be saved is in no independent way. It's our reaction to the grace of God. Armenianism says that Armenians believe that God chooses who will be saved based on his foreknowledge of who will choose him. So one say God chooses one and rejects another. The Armenians say, no, everybody gets a choice, but God knows what they were going to choose. Okay, point number two. Calvinists believe that Jesus' sacrifice was only to cover the sins of those who were predestined to be saved. So Jesus didn't die for the whole world. He only died for the elect. Armenians believe Christ died for every sin of everyone in the world. This is the only way anyone could be free to choose God. Number three, Calvinists believe in irresistible grace. God chooses those who will be saved, and the individuals have no choice. They cannot resist the grace of God. Arminians believe that God off, God's offer can be received or rejected by a matter of the will. So you can see from listening to those very basic distinctions between the two camps that we, as evangelical Christians, are more Arminian than Calvinist. Yet there are denominations that are Calvinist and have a little, uh, you know, different perspective here. And I want to say this. When it comes to the doctrinal applications that the modern church falls into, it's okay that we have some differences here. Whether Calvinism or Arminianism are correct, or there's some compromise between the two. I think there's, a there's more common ground than the two camps would you know, show. Our responsibility remains the same. We are to proclaim the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ to the entire world, period. Amen? Does God know who's going to be saved? Absolutely. Are some people going to reject him? Absolutely. Is, is, did Jesus die for the sins of the world? Absolutely. You know what? God knows, but I don't know who's going to be saved. So I'm just going to preach to everyone who will listen. I'm going to preach to anything standing still. I'm going to preach to anyone with ears. And see, you know, I'm going to throw it out there, all the seed, and see where it sticks. And that's, that's the balance we need to have. You know, as you look at the scriptures in both of these camps, you're going to see good arguments on both sides. But the truth is, Matthew 28, 19 and Acts 1, 8 say it all for us. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Acts 1, 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the commission of the church. That's our job. There's no sitting back and saying, ah, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. I'm glad I'm saved. Good luck to the rest of you. So that was pr probably more theology than you ever wanted to know. But it's important we understand theology. You could walk into a church that has Calvinist ideas. You can walk into a church that's not evangelical and they have no urgency to preach the gospel and they don't give altar calls and nobody gets saved. And you need to know where that theological idea comes from. Now, having said all that about our predestination by God, According to verse 5, he is led to our adoption by him. He's adopted us. Did you know you were adopted? 
If you're a Gentile, you're grafted into Abraham. We were adopted. Us crazy Gentiles were disconnected from God. We were bad. We were pagans. We were doing all kinds of crazy stuff. If you're not Jewish, the Jewish people were the only people that had connection with God. Everyone else was on the outside disqualified. You don't seem to care. You know, that means before Jesus, before he died on the cross, before he rose again, before he told Paul, bring the gospel to the Gentiles, we didn't have a prayer. We would live, die, and wind up in hell. But because of what God has done, he's given us the opportunity to be adopted, amen, to be grafted in, to be part of his holy family. You know, it would be enough if God just, you know, took us in as servants. It would be enough if God just said, well, you're my workers. It would be enough if God said, well, you're my soldiers. Hey, that's better than being disconnected, amen? But God didn't say you're a worker, you're a servant, you're a soldier. He said, you're my sons and my daughters, and he's called us friends tonight. Come on. Come on, Wednesday night. It's an awesome thing what what he's done for us in salvation. Yes, he selected us. Yes, he's predestined us. Yes, he knew we'd respond to the gospel. Yes, he knew that we would be in relationship with him before the foundations of the earth, before we were conceived, before we were knit together. He chose us, and what a beautiful thing he chose us to be. Not slaves, not, you know, workers, not soldiers. No, sons and daughters. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for making me a son. Our sonship was made possible by the only begotten son, Jesus Christ himself. Look what it says here. As sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Jesus died, the only begotten died and rose, and he said what? I'm going to offer salvation as a free gift, and to everyone who responds, I'm going to make them sons and daughters of God. Think about that. We're joint heirs with Christ. That's what the scripture says, amen? That's good news, man. If you're not clapping, I hope you inherit nothing. When you get to heaven, God will say, Pastor Rick was preaching so good, and you sat there like a statue. No inheritance for you. First million years, you've got to stand in the corner. I just said, you are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Come on. Woo! I'm not going to get to heaven, and they're going to stick me in Motel 6. And No, he's up there building mansions for us. Man, I I mean, I don't know all of what we're going to inherit, but you know what? I know it's going to be awesome just to be in heaven and not in hell, just to be in the presence of God for eternity and not cut off from it, amen, just to be part of the family of God. Let me get back up here with the flowers. What an awesome thing to be a son. It says here, as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Now, God hasn't made us his children grudgingly or out of obligation or because he had to. Look how the second half of verse 5 frames it. According to the good pleasure of his will. God wasn't like, all right, they can be sons. All right, well, we'll save the Gentiles. They're crazy. No, God was like, this is what I wanted all along. This is what I wanted to do with you from from the moment of the fall in the garden. I planned redemption. I planned to send Jesus. I planned to save all of mankind. This is what I've always wanted to have relationship with you. Hmm. According to the good pleasure 
of his will. Verse 6 points out the attribute of God's character that's highlighted as, you know, he glorifies us and brings us in. It's his grace. His grace is highlighted. Look at this. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Anyone who looks at our life should see the grace of God. Amen. Anyone who looks at a sinner that becomes a saint should look at and say, wow, that's the grace of God. Anyone see the drug addict set free or the prostitute set free or the alcoholic set free should look and say, that's the grace of God. See, when God snatches us out of the mud and dusts us off and, and, and calls us his very own, that says to all the world that God is a gracious God. That he doesn't just take a select few, that he doesn't just take the special ones, or he doesn't have favorites, but whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord can be saved, and he'll make him a son of a daughter, and it's his good pleasure, and it's his will to do it, and he's happy to do it, amen? And it's to the praise of the glory of his grace. Every verse of the Bible Every verse of the Old Testament and the New Testament, every story, every person, everything points to Jesus Christ and the grace of God. You can find Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. You can find the grace of God. Even in the law covenant, the grace was coming. It was in the shadows. It was lurking behind the scenes. But God was ready to unleash it. Why? Because it was his good pleasure to save us. And that as he did it, we became trophies of his grace. And his grace was highlighted so that all the lost world could see it and want to come and have a relationship with such a God. Now, the second half of verse 6 is, all, is very comforting to anyone who's ever felt lost, rejected, or, or that they don't fit in. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but there are a lot of people that feel like they never fit in. There are a lot of people that feel lost and rejected and don't know acceptance. I've counseled hundreds of people over decades and people just with tears in their eyes would express to me, I never connected with my mom or my dad or my family or I never fit in in school or I never made friends easily. And you, you see the brokenness there. Why? Because it's a human condition uh, for us to want to connect and want to be accepted and want to fit in. People say all the time, I don't need anybody. They're lying. All of us need somebody. We need each other. All of us need somebody. We need Jesus. So the verse says here, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. What's the beloved? It's the, it's the Godhead. It's the, it's the Trinity. It's the Father heart of God. We were estranged from God, separated by our sin. We had no capacity to have a relationship with God because he was holy and we were sinful and sin separated us. But what? Jesus died. Jesus rose. Jesus broke the power of sin and made us acceptable in the beloved. So then now we could have a relationship with God. Awesome. People feel rejected. People feel like they don't fit in. Some people have always felt like outcasts. Listen to me. When you come to Jesus, you're an outcast no more. Some people always have struggled with rejection. Understand this. God accepts you, and he loves you, and he's predestined you, and he knew that you'd respond to the gospel and his grace, and you're one of his sons or his daughters. So many people in this world strive tirelessly to do things to make them to acceptable to others. 
what an exhausting thing that is. There are some people that could never get the approval of their parents or their teachers or their coaches or their, their classmates or their coworkers, and they strive and they work and they strive so hard, tirelessly, and never really find that acceptance that they wanted. I want to read you a story about a baseball player named Keith Hernandez. Keith Hernandez is one of baseball's greatest players. He has a lifetime 300 batting average. He won numerous Golden Glove Awards for excellence in fielding. He won a batting championship for having the highest average. He was the most valuable player. He was the most valuable player in the league and even in the World Series. Yet with all of his accomplishments, Keith had missed out on something that was very important to him, his father's acceptance. And the recognition that he wanted from his dad was valuable and precious to him, but Keith shared that he never got it. Listen to what Keith said at a very candid interview about his relationship with his dad. One day, Keith asked his father, Dad, I have a lifetime 300 batting average. What more do you want? His father replied, but someday you're going to look back and think I could have done more. Wow. Our Heavenly Father is not like that. He's not a hard hearted curmudgeon who judges and nitpicks, who refuses to acknowledge us, who makes us feel inadequate and unaccepted. Our Heavenly Father loves us more than we can imagine, and He accepts us because of what Jesus did in our place. Our Heavenly Father wants to have relationship with us. He always did, and now because of what Jesus has done, he can have the very thing he wants. So he is a loving father, an accepting father, and he invites everyone who will come to him to have intimacy with him. The great news today is this. If you're a Christian, you're not an outcast. You're not rejected, and you don't need to strive or do works to be accepted by God. You are accepted in the beloved. Come on, give him praise tonight. That's all we got this week. Let's bow our heads. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for Ephesians. I know some of this was weighty. I know.